thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. As our teenagers start to go back to school, many adolescents will have to advance their sleep phase in order to start classes. While we know that delayed sleep phase syndrome is common during adolescence, insomnia symptomatology may be undertreated. It may be attributed to screens, social jet lag, or too much caffeine. We try to provide education around proper sleep hygiene techniques and often deploy cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia that was developed for adults. Are there other special considerations for adolescents? Does it make sense to utilize CBTI in this age group? Is it appropriate to utilize sleep restriction therapy for teenagers? Should we adapt our current CBTI algorithms to better suit the adolescent population? Here to help us understand this better are Dr. Maureen Elizabeth McQuillan and Dr. Sarah morsbach Honecker. Dr. Honecker is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the Indiana University School of Medicine and is Director of Behavioral Sleep Medicine at Riley Children's Hospital. She is the Director of the Healthy Sleep for Kids Research Laboratory. Her research examines evidence-based identification and treatment of pediatric sleep disorders with an emphasis on health equity. Dr. McQuillan is an assistant professor of clinical pediatrics, working in pediatric behavioral sleep medicine and high-risk asthma at the same facilities. Her research aims to advance understanding of the development and treatment of sleep problems in children and their families, particularly among high-stress, underserved populations. Both of these pediatric sleep behavioral medicine specialists provide insomnia care to children and adolescents. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. It's an honor. Thank you for having us. So Dr. Honecker, help me understand the difference in adolescent sleep compared to adults. I only treat adults. So there are some differences in sleep physiology in teens. So a lot of people are familiar with the normative circadian delay that adolescents experience. And also compared to children, there's a, a slower accumulation of sleep drive. Huh. Um, and so in addition to these differences in physiology, there are lifestyle differences that need to be considered. So many adolescents have early school start times that can lead to weeknight um, restriction of sleep opportunity. And so they're more likely to oversleep on weekends and take naps. Um, so, so a number of differences in sleep physiology and lifestyle um, in at, that contribute to differences in adolescent sleep. So tell me about your experience with adolescent insomnia. So like with adults, a lot of adolescents with insomnia will experience hyperarousal around bedtime. In teens, often they will try to manage that hyperarousal by distracting themselves with phones or other screens. Uh, they're also in teens tends to be an element of a delayed circadian phase that can contribute to insomnia. Mm. So then do you use cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia with your adolescent patients? And is it the same as what we deploy to adults? So CBTI was really a developed for adults. And there are a lot of reasons why it should and often is tailored to better meet the unique needs of teens. So there is some evidence to show efficacy of CBTI in adolescents. 
Uh, but it's really interesting when you look at the studies that have tested CBTI, the protocols look quite heterogeneous. So with adults, we think of CBTI as being characterized by these five treatment components, right? So sleep hygiene, um, sleep restriction, stimulus control, cognitive therapy, and relaxation training. And when you look at research studies on adolescent CBTI, um, you find that providers are already making a lot of adaptations. Mm. So for example, a, a, a pen study protocols that we reviewed, only three of them included sleep restriction therapy. And some of them included other components like bright light therapy or motivational interviewing. So clinical providers and researchers are already adapting uh, CBTI for adolescents. It's just that the way that they're adapting CBTI uh, tends to vary quite a bit. So as a result, it makes it difficult to, to really characterize what CBTI is in mm. adolescents. What does the treatment look like? That's interesting. Maureen, is that your experience as well? Yeah, I would say um, I work in our sleep clinic two days a week, and a good proportion of my patients are adolescents. And if I diagnose an adolescent with insomnia, I then do proceed with CBTI, but I find myself needing to adapt it so mm. that it's acceptable and feasible for teens, just clinically encountering teens who either have resistance or some barriers in their life that they're unable to implement certain aspects of standard CBTI. And I think in our work with meeting with providers across the country, we learn that other providers are doing this too, that they are applying CBTI, but having to adapt it to make it acceptable and feasible for teens. So is this what your survey was about? So we did a survey of more than 3,000 teens with insomnia. So these were teens who we recruited for, through social media and they self-identified as having insomnia. And the goal of the survey was really to understand their experience with insomnia, what uh, symptoms they were experiencing, help-seeking behaviors, uh, problems that caused the, the most impairment, uh, what they felt research priorities could be. So it was a, it was a way to get the patient perspective on this disorder uh, with the goal of contributing to patient-centered care and research. Oh, I love that. So what are some of the things that you took away from that survey? So one of the pieces that was concerning is that we learned that only about 30% of adolescents who self-identified as having insomnia had sought help from a healthcare professional. So more than two thirds of teens in our sample did not seek help. Huh. And when they did seek help, most had had symptoms for at least a year prior to, prior to help seeking. Oh, wow. So I think there are a lot of teens out there who are really struggling with insomnia and who aren't necessarily bringing these concerns to a healthcare provider. So do you think this, um, it sounds like maybe an increase in the prevalence of insomnia. Um, do you think that's generational or do you think it's age? I would argue that it's both. I think mm. that developmentally, just like Sarah was speaking about earlier, we know that there are developmental differences in adolescents that might make insomnia more common, more prevalent. But I, I do think it's worth highlighting some unique aspects to this generation of teenagers that 
we know there's abundance of screen use that mm. not only are there phones, but there's tablets, um, you know, laptops, iPads, TVs, everything under the sun. And in addition to all the entertainment that's available on screens, there's also quite a bit of homework that's done on screens. So this generation in particular is burdened with a lot of screen use and also the pressures of social media. There's mm. probably a lot of, we talk to some teens about fear of missing out. You know, they don't, they don't want to miss out on social media opportunities with other teens. So there's those pressures that's unique to this generation. And then another thing that's really unique to this generation that I think is worth highlighting is the fact that they have lived through a global pandemic and mm. experienced um, a significant um, time where they had to stay at home. And I think a lot of the teens that we've worked with or that we've met with in research studies um, have talked to us about how when they were at home during COVID, that was a whole chunk of time where they were isolated to their room or specifically to their bed for mm. a lot of the day. So they were sleeping in bed and spending waking hours in bed doing homework, socializing on their phones. And as we know, this is poor stimulus control when we're not saving bed for sleep. That's a really good point and, and pretty unique to the, you know, current generation, you know, of, of teenagers. So how do you address screens in this age group? You know, earlier, you know, you had mentioned, is it that they are utilizing screens to, you know, quiet the thoughts in their mind or is the screen contributing to insomnia? I mean, I imagine this gets a little bit contentious. In our survey, we asked teens what they felt the top contributors were to their insomnia. And screens was very low on the list. So a lot of teens with insomnia do not feel like screens are playing a large role. So the factors that they identified as most contributory were stress, racing thoughts, and depression. Huh. Um, another thing that teens communicated to us in an open-ended item about what it's like to be a teen with depression is that often they feel that their insomnia is minimized by the adults in their lives. And a common source of minimization is to assume that the insomnia is caused by excessive screen use uh, when that is not the experience of the teens. So as a provider who's talking to a teen with insomnia, certainly light from screens, um, screen use can be contributory and it's worth discussing, but I probably wouldn't lead with that because mm. it can feel very minimizing. So it's sort of this idea that it's something that you're doing. It's your fault that you have the insomnia is I, I think how it can feel. Mm, no, I, I can see that because even, you know, in the adult population, there's a fair amount of resistance, right? And so I, I always wonder, is it, you know, if they're saying, well, it's not the screen, is that because they're really reluctant to let it go? Or is that a fair, you know, I can't really be objective, right? Is that a fair assessment of what's contributing to their insomnia? So it's, it's interesting. Um, I love that you don't lead with that. <laughs> because it sounds like, you know, you don't want to be antagonistic right at the beginning. So how how do you start? I agree with Sarah's point about not leading with it because so many teens have heard it before. They've seen mm -hmm. it in media. They've seen it in news. You know, they've maybe heard it at school or in speaking with their primary care provider to not use screens. 
And if we were to lead with that, they would be like, oh, I've heard that before. It doesn't work. I've tried putting my phone aside for an hour. It doesn't work. I still have trouble sleeping. So if we open with other aspects of CBTI, that can be helpful. And then when we do get to the conversation about screens, because it is still important, Mm. um, sometimes I find what's helpful is to meet the team where they're at and to try to gradually reduce screen use. So find maybe some ways that we could reduce it um, by considering various factors about screens that that can sometimes be helpful instead of just saying, let's cut it cold turkey. So it's almost like a risk management strategy. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good characterization. I, I think, too, it's important to understand for any given teen what the function is that this screen use is serving. So are they using screens to distract themselves from worries or racing thoughts? Are they using screens to wind down? Um, so what function is the screen use serving? And are there ways that we can meet that need with less intense screen use? I mean, mm. it, or, or are there ways that, that we potentially even could meet that need without screens at all? And so I, I love that it's sort of a, a stepwise approach um, because I feel like, you know, such an important part of treating insomnia is really partnering with our patients. And so, you know, we have to kind of be aligned, right, in, in sort of our priorities and, and the patient voice is so important. So I love that you're really, you're really highlighting it. Um, you mentioned something in passing about how sleep pressure doesn't build as quickly in this age group. Tell me more about that. So compared to children, sleep pressure accumulates more slowly. So when you think about younger children who still need a nap, the sleep pressure is accumulating more quickly. Mm. And in teenagers, the uh, sleep pressure accumulates more slowly, which is what essentially allows them to stay up later and not crash, essentially. So is it really hard to get them to be more consistent over the weekend? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you navigate so, that? Well, and one of the, another piece of the survey that we did was we asked teens about common treatment recommendations for insomnia, and we asked how likely they would be to um, adhere to different recommendations. So more than... 25% of teens said that they were unwilling to wake earlier on weekends. So for about a quarter of teens, that is a hard no. And we know that that's a critical piece of mm. insomnia treatment for many teens, right, is to restrict time in bed. Honestly, though, I'm surprised it's only 25%. That seems low. <laughs> I'm surprised it's only 25%. I would imagine yeah, it would have been yeah. higher, you know? So, okay, that's really interesting. How, so how do you, how do you get more buy-in? Because I feel like you've got the patient, right? The adolescent patient, but then you've also got the parent. So it, it feels like it's a little bit more maybe complex or nuanced than treating insomnia in adults. I, I appreciate that question because I think that's one of the most interesting things about trying to treat insomnia in teenagers. And one of the the features of teens that makes them unique from adults is that they're embedded within a family system. So mm. they have parents who have thoughts on their sleep and 
you know, sometimes they have a sibling that they may share a room with. Um, so there's factors that are relevant for teens that would not be relevant for adults. And with the parents in mind, um, we're constantly wanting to check in with them, make sure that they understand the interventions we're talking about, and thinking about ways that parents can support the teens. And I think for this idea in particular of, for example, keeping a consistent wake-up time, there's a lot of parents who are hesitant to enforce that because sometimes they see that their child has not slept well. They know that their child was up until 4 a.m. Mm. And the idea of making their child still wake up at 6 a.m., 7 a.m., 8 a.m., seems really daunting to them. And we've had parents express a lot of parental guilt, like, oh, I want to let them sleep. Why would I maintain a consistent wake-up time or enforce a consistent wake-up time? So I think for both the parents and the teens, one thing that's really important to do is spend some time talking about sleep processes, making sure they understand circadian rhythm and sleep pressure and understand why we're making this recommendation about keeping a more consistent wake-up time. So tell me about the DREAMIT study. What does it stand for? DREAMIT stands for Designing Realistic Management of Insomnia in Teens. So this is a study that is funded by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine Foundation. I'm the PI, Maureen's a co-investigator, and Lisa Meltzer is a consultant on the project. And the goal of the project is to adapt CBTI for and with teens with insomnia. Interesting. So tell me more. Yeah. So this study, um, in order to achieve that objective of uh, adapting CBTI for and with teenagers, we first did a whole round of focus groups with three different key stakeholders. The first group were teens with insomnia. The second group was parents of teenagers with insomnia. And they didn't necessarily need to be the parents of the teens in the study, just parents who had teens with insomnia. And then the third group was providers. So mostly sleep psychologists around the country. And for all three groups, they were um, a national sample. So we recruited the teens and the parents via social media and then met over um, a virtual platform to do focus groups. And that was the first part of the study is to just talk with them about standard CBTI and get their feedback on it you know, their thoughts of what they think is good about it, what they think is maybe challenging about it, what would not be acceptable, what would not be feasible. Mm. And Seema, to your point earlier about only 25% of teens being reluctant to wake earlier on weekends, in our focus group, uh, we, we definitely felt like that was a larger portion of our teens. <laughs> that this is a real um, sticking point um, in part because they're so sleep restricted during the week. Mm, that makes sense. That makes sense. So tell me more about, about this um, dream it. Yeah. So after those initial focus groups, we then reviewed all of the data that we got from the focus groups. We had them, you know, qualitatively explain their opinions about CBTI, but they also completed anonymous polls rating their reactions to CBTI. And so we reviewed all of that data, and we actually also worked with a teen advisory board, so a group of five teenagers who were really part of our research team. They huh. reviewed the data with us, they um, made suggestions, and together as a research team, we proposed some adaptations to CBTI. 
And we're now reviewing those in additional focus groups with the three key stakeholders um, to see what they think about the adapted treatment and see if it is considered acceptable and feasible. So I imagine this survey um, took a lot of effort. You know, who who did this with you? So this was a joint effort done by myself, Stacy Simon, Helly Byers, Danielle Simmons, Arielle Williamson, and Lisa Meltzer. And it is currently under review, so hopefully it will be um, published soon. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about the Dream It study. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. The ICSD3-TR is here. This new product is the premier clinical text for the diagnosis of sleep disorders. This text revision was based on an extensive review of the current literature and features new and updated information in the text of each chapter, minor corrections, and some criteria changes. Visit learn.asm.org to purchase. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Honecker and Dr. McQuillan about insomnia in adolescents and their work on Dream It. So we kind of touched a little bit on um, sleep restriction. So I imagine your focus group had some um, feedback about sleep restriction therapy. So a lot of teens are already sleep restricted during the school week because they have a lot of activities or homework. And so the idea of having a later bedtime on weekends was not always well accepted. Mm. I think there are teens with insomnia, and we see this clinically, where they, like adults, they truly are going to bed too early. Um, But a lot of teens with insomnia are already going to bed late and are already sleep restricted during the week. And... This creates a conundrum uh, from a treatment perspective, right? Because we want to try to improve their sleep efficiency, um, but they're already um, very sleep restricted. And there is some evidence that at least some weekend oversleep is probably protective. And so I think one approach that we're considering, and again, this is you know, very preliminary, mm. but it, an adapted approach could be to focus more on reducing weekend weekday discrepancy and reducing naps and focus less on weeknight bedtime and sort of strict sleep logs and sleep efficiency calculations and having the same wake time seven days a week. So it would be a little bit more of a naturalistic or flexible approach where Mm. we are limiting time in bed and limiting sleep on the weekends and for naps, but maybe less so on the weeknights. Well, it sounds like you're really sort of embracing this idea of in medicine, perfection is the enemy of good (laughs) and sort of (laughs) really being, you know, respectful and thoughtful about um, who we are, you know, trying to help. And so I, I can see how it's sort of a kinder, gentler way of doing that probably is much more appropriate for this age group so that you don't meet so much resistance. And, and I'm kind of wondering if there is 
Um, you know, at what point do they transition into more of that adult insomnia phenotype? Um, I imagine it's not at 18. That's a good question. I, I mean, we know that the delayed circadian phase really goes into the early to mid-20s. And we also know that there's some very unique facets of the college lifestyle for, for those adolescents who, mm. who attend college. So I don't know that I have a good answer for you. Well, and I'm kind of wondering, you know, from a physiological standpoint, is it about, you know, melatonin? Is it continued sort of um, you mentioned how sleep pressure doesn't build up as quickly as when they were younger. And I'm wondering if that continues to not build as quickly and, you know, as they advance into adulthood. Um, and I think the way where my brain is going with this is I'm wondering if this, um, when you do put this out for public consumption, I wonder if it, if it would make sense to apply this program to college age students as well. I don't know. I, I think that's a difficult question. Mm. One of the pieces that's so important about this project is that we're really working with the stakeholder to develop it. And the teens that we're working with, almost uh, almost all of them have been in high school. And so uh, it's certainly possible that this approach could be expanded to work well with a college age population. Um, but ideally that intervention would be developed with that age group to meet their unique needs. But I, I kind of love how you approach this in a way that, you know, kind of allows us to think about flexibility and how we deliver these treatment modalities. And, and I feel like we all sort of inherently do that with our patients, right? If you have, you know, somebody who is maybe has a high genetic you know, predisposition for bipolar disease, right? Or bipolar disorder. Um, you won't deploy sleep restriction for that particular person, right? And so I feel like there's a little bit of that maybe curating their care. Uh, and I love that you are really examining it in this age group that I think historically has been really challenging because of all of the things you've mentioned with, you know, this delayed sleep phase and school pressures and homework and athletics, and they're already sleep restricted and then their parents get worried. And so um, I applaud you for what you're doing. I'm, I'm really curious about, you know, where you're going with this program and what will it look like? Long term, after we you know review this adapted version that we're currently working on with the focus groups, we then plan to test out the adapted material to see if it is efficacious. And then we hope to disseminate it so that other providers would be able to use this adapted treatment for teens. And do you envision it being like an app or an online program? That's such a good question because I know there are a lot of apps and online programs out there. For mm -hmm. this study, we were actually focusing most on the content. So really, what's the content of the intervention that's going to be most effective and acceptable and feasible for teens, and less so about content delivery. So mm. we want to make an intervention that the content is solid, and then it can be applied in a app-based format, a group format, an individual format that, that might be um, later on down the road in terms of content delivery. Interesting. Interesting. So I, I understand that you are both pediatric behavioral sleep medicine specialists, and I'm kind of wondering if that is what motivated you to do this, or like so many things in our field, was it based on previous work? 
would say a little bit of both. So as clinicians, I think we, um, Maureen and I and, and many of our colleagues already are making a lot of adaptations, recognizing that traditional CBTI isn't always a great fit for teens. Mm. And there are also a lot of researchers out there who are studying adapted protocols that are very innovative. I think the challenge is that when you're trying to disseminate a treatment, it needs to be well characterized. So these are the parts of it, or these are the principles. And at this time, at CBTI for adolescents, we feel isn't well characterized. So that mm. was really the goal of the project. Uh, in addition, we really wanted to involve teens in the process. Uh, and I, I don't know if previous protocols um, have done that. They, they may have, um, but we wanted to do it in a, a very systematic way and make that a focus of the project. Well, I love that you have a you know, an adolescent advisory board. You know, I think that's... We call them the dream team. (laughs) Well, of course, you have to call them the dream team. Of course, they're too young to remember the actual dream team from (laughs) basketball, but the dream team they are. We showed them pictures. (laughs) I love it. I love it. You know, when we did the um, high school video contest... We, you know, as as part of our committee, we looked at all the videos, right? And we were like, okay, we kind of like this, we kind of like that. But one of the um, one of the winners is really based on the their peer, you know, their peers and that sort of advisory group. And so it's so interesting because even from that brief experience with the high school video contest, what we had decided on the committee turned out to be a little bit different than what the you know adolescents, the peers, had chosen. And so it really like there was one video a few years ago that were like, oh, this is really kind of dark and scary and we don't think that they were going to like it. And that's the one they chose. <laughs> and so, you know, I feel like that voice is so important to capture. And I kind of wonder if um, just by doing that, you know, for example, in your focus group and, and the people that you have involved, I wonder if automatically then you have a little bit more engagement. I think that's the hope. Mm. Yeah. I think the teens we've met with so far have definitely expressed this um, interest in peers and essentially like wondering, okay, have other teens tried this? What do other teens think of this? Really wanting to understand that teen narrative. And I, I think that speaks to what you're saying of that peer voice is really important to them. And and it's it probably is an, you know, underrepresented group, uh, you know, in, in sort of our typical sleep practice. And so I love that you're allowing them to have a voice and have input. You know, I think we need more of that. It has been hugely rewarding and fun to meet with the teens, both in our focus groups, but then also in that teen advisory board to get their input, um, because, you know, sometimes the teen voice is different than what we would expect. So as part of this protocol, do you also do um, sleep diaries or sleep logs? And what does that look like? So in, in classic CBTI, we would do sleep logs throughout treatment. Um, especially this is especially important for sleep restriction because we really need to know how much time is the patient in bed, how much time are they sleeping. That allows us to calculate their sleep efficiency and then adjust their restricted sleep schedule as needed. Um, But when we met with our teens in focus groups, we got a lot of pushback that they um, don't love the idea of logging their sleep for an entire treatment. And 
They also don't love paperwork. So if it's a traditional sleep <laughs> log, um, they they seem to feel that, you know, they already have a lot of homework. They already have a lot of stuff they have to do. This feels like one more thing they have to do. And we even proposed various alternatives to them of other ways of logging their sleep. And there's just like texts or apps. And, mm. Yeah. And there's quite a bit of resistance. Um, it's like they they understood, I think, why it might be helpful. Um, but they just kept saying, well, we already have so much we have to do and we'll probably forget. So I think in our work towards adaptation, that is sort of an ongoing question is how much sleep logging will be needed. And um, that's pretty honest, though. That's pretty good feedback. You know, and I and I wonder if maybe we need to do a better job with that with our adults. Because, I mean, we know that there's a certain pop percentage that they're filling it out in the parking lot. Right. <laughs> you know, and every night looks the same. Right. And so yeah. I, I appreciate that they're being honest about it and, and kind of, you know, it's kind of insightful, right? They're recognizing, they're like, yeah, there's no way I'm going to do that. Actually, a lot of times the message was, well, I would be willing to do it, but I feel like I won't be able to stick to it. Mm. So not necessarily a defiance, but just more of a sort of realistic um, perspective that, yeah, I may do this for a week or two, um, but I don't I don't know that this is something that I could maintain. But I love that honesty, though. Yeah. And one of the themes also in our insomnia survey, one of the qualitative themes was just feeling overburdened. Mm. I think this age group, uh, maybe more than more than other generations, feels a lot of pressure to be successful academically in extracurriculars, uh, socially. Uh, colleges are, are, are getting more difficult to, to get into. And so uh, I think any recommendation that is perceived as adding burden mm. uh, is going to be challenging. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Even when we look at something like the MCAT, you know, I remember how I did on the MCAT and I thought I did reasonably well. And then I look at some of the things that they're doing now. <laughs> and I'm not sure I would have been able to compete, you know, with the current generation and what they have to do. Yeah. It's a different world. Yes. So tell me any final thoughts. Um, I don't think so. Do you have any final thoughts for me? I think my main take home is that sometimes for providers, whether it's sleep medicine doctors who maybe see a teenager or even primary care providers who maybe see a teenager who's struggling with sleep, sometimes our first reaction is to ask them like, well, are you setting enough time aside for sleep? Are you using screens in bed? And I think our teens do recognize the importance of sleep, but they're really struggling. They're struggling with falling asleep. They're struggling with staying asleep. So maybe keeping an open mind about other strategies to prioritize, like keeping a more consistent wake-up time or avoiding naps during the day or really trying to only use the bed for sleep as much as possible and and meeting the teen where they're at. If, if we were to make that recommendation about only use the bed for sleep, if a teen says the bed's the only place I have, Maybe we got to meet them where they're at and, and brainstorm other ways to try to distinguish their sleep space from their wake space. I love that. Well, thank you both for joining us today and helping us to better understand insomnia in adolescence. Well, thank you so much for having us and for giving us this platform to share all the things that we've learned from the teens and providers and parents that we've spoken with. 
Yes, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.